Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. As you know, we just left off where he had said to uh, obey, not only in his absence, but, I mean, sorry, not only in his presence, but much more in his absence. And he told them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, and because it's God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. And listen to what he says next in verses 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We're going to start off tonight by breaking down this section that says do everything without grumbling or disputing. I'm going to ask you a question, if you can answer it. Why do we grumble and complain? What is the root cause of why we grumble and complain? Because we don't get our way. Keep going. There's lots of answers to this Pride, question. Greed, Pride, greed, envy. Less Keep going. Eyes, flesh, I'm sorry? Not it's not fair in our eyes. Yeah, because we're human. That's a good answer. Loss of control. And that's where we're starting to go here. We're going to take it deeper than the things you just listed are kind of good answers. But we're going to go deeper. I'm going to give you three reasons why. There's more, but I'm going to give you three main reasons why we grumble and complain. Because what I want to do is instead of just saying, hey, stop grumbling, I want to get to the root of the issue. You know, I've heard this one preacher say, stop trying to get rid of the cobweb, kill the spider. Let's get to the real issue. And here's one of the real issues. We grumble and complain because of a lack of trust in God. Plain and simple. It goes, one of the root reasons is a lack of trust in God. You can try to Explain it, rationalize it all you want. The real issue is when you grumble and complain, it's because you really don't trust God. And like you said, Jim, in his sovereignty. Go with me to uh, uh, Exodus chapter 15. <clears throat> I take you back to the situation where the nation of Israel is complaining and they're grumbling. And of course, they're, in their minds, they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. But look closely at what happens. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22. And then we're going to get into all the way to chapter 16, verse 8. Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. So then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went there three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there He tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling, listen, against who? A Lord. And here it says they've been grumbling against Moses, but God doesn't see it as grumbling against Moses. He's heard your grumbling against the Lord, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You remember in our study of the book of Ephesians, we saw that our battle is really not against flesh and blood. But what happens with many of us is, because of some other things that I'm going to pull out in just a second, of some of these root causes of our, of our grumbling and our dissatisfaction, what happens is really this, is when we start to get upset about something, we tend to focus on our spouse or on the preacher or on whoever it is or our boss. It's always their fault that this is going on. But ultimately, who is in control? I'm going to ask a question that makes you uncomfortable. Who actually is in control of whether or not a plane flies into a building in New York or not? When we complain, if we understand our scriptures to be true, the real issue we have is not with man. It's with God. And so when we start to move into that realm, as you know, I'm not one of these preachers that expects you to be there today. I've, I'm learning to lean. I, the Bible talks about, have we've already seen how Paul said when he was in chapter 1, how he can't wait to get out of prison so he could help them in the progress of their faith. You understand, my, my desire is that you hear, when God speaks to your heart and starts to deal with some issues in your life, you don't hear condemnation, but you hear actually a love of God saying, hey, let's move you to where you need to be. And it's actually for your good. But when you move into this realm where you really do trust God, when you really do understand that everything that comes to you from the hand of God is good, because once you have been made His child through faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God towards you is gone. You do hopefully understand that. He poured all of His wrath on His Son. But too many Christians still think that God's punishing me. Folks, if you think that after you've trusted Christ, after you've entered into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that God would punish you for something, you really believe that Jesus didn't pay the full price for your sin. If I were to ask you, did Jesus pay the full price for your sin? you say, yeah. Then why do you think that you're still being punished for your sin? You need to understand that the wrath of God was poured out on all of your sin, on Jesus Christ. And therefore, everything, listen again, everything that comes to us from His hand is good. It may not be pleasant at the time, as the Hebrew writer says in chapter 12. But you've got to understand this. That means when the motorhome blows up in the middle of nowhere, you don't freak out, but you say, Lord, right. what do you got in mind here? Amen. Our eyes are on you, and he gets to show off. Those of you that were at First Merritt Island where I got to preach there this past week know that I walked them through the fact that Jesus is reteaching us the same lesson over and over and over. It takes on different forms. It may look like cancer. It may look like a job loss. It may look like a relationship struggle. It may look like an issue problem with your child. But the real lesson is always the same. Do you trust me? Jesus sent his disciples out two by two and he says, you can't bring anything. What was he trying to teach them? Trust, dependence, reliance on him. 
Of course, they didn't learn the lesson. They come back and report all that they had done. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, a desolate place, and get some rest. As you know, they get in the boat, crowd sees where they're going, and gets there ahead of them. Jesus has compassion. He teaches them. The disciples say, hey, it's late in the day. Send them away so they can get something to eat. And what does Jesus say? He says, you feed them. Of course, they are now thrown into another situation where they say, we can't do this. They pulled their calculators out. They're like, eight months' wages won't be enough to give everyone a bite. And then what does he do? He reteaches the lesson. It's not you. It's me. What do you got? And all we got is this five loaves and two fish. This little bit. Remember, it wasn't five loaves. It was a boy who was carrying this around. So it was a small amount of food, and Jesus says, tell the people to go sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And we missed this. At the time that he went out into the crowd, did they have any idea how Jesus was going to feed all those people with that little bit of food? But they had to trust him. And he reteaches the lesson in the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, by the way, the Bible says they didn't learn it, even though he had 12 basketfuls left over, one for each knucklehead. <laughs> But if you keep reading, what does he do immediately? He sends them off in the boat by themselves. He goes up on the mountain to pray. They can't even get across the lake because the wind's against them, and they're struggling. And what does Jesus do? He goes and he walks across the water. Folks, we just read that the people all ran around the lake. It's not that hard to run around the lake. They can even beat the boat by running around the lake. Why doesn't Jesus just go around the lake? Why does he go across? And here's the answer, because he can. And he's using it again as a definition or a demonstration of his power. He's showing off. Now, there's an interesting something in there, though, and this is where we need to go. The scripture says he meant to pass them by. Have you ever caught that? He's walking on the water, and it says he meant to pass by them. Now, I've got to be honest with you. That gave me a little bit of a bellyache one time. And I was like, wait a minute, Lord. You want to be in the boat with us. You want to help us out. What do you mean you meant to pass them by? And then I thought about Luke 24, where Jesus reveals himself eventually to the two men on the road to Emmaus. Remember, they had been with the group. Uh, some of our women said that he was born, uh, sorry, risen from the dead. And, and uh, some of our guys went and checked the tomb, but he wasn't there. But we're not sure. And they were discouraged and doubting. And they left Jerusalem. We're heading back to Emmaus and walking the seven-mile walk. Who shows up? Jesus. He pursues them in love. Now, he kept them from recognizing that he was there. And boy, you just got to keep that in mind because he's always with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. But sometimes he keeps you from recognizing that he's there, even though the scripture says he'll always be there. He teaches them the scriptures. Their hearts are burning. And then when they get to the house, listen to what the scripture says. It says, Jesus acted as if he was going further. Wait a minute, Lord. Why? Why would you act like you're going further? I know you. You want to go into the house and eat with them and teach them some more and fellowship. Why would you act like you're going further? Why would you mean to pass them by? And then God opened my eyes just last week when I was down in Panama. And he said, Jim, because I'll never force myself on anyone. I'm there. If you don't invite me in to be a part of what you're dealing with, I have to keep going. Oh, by the way, they still don't learn the lesson with the walking on the water because the scripture says in Mark chapter 6, verse 58, or 52 or 58, I forget, one of those two, he says they hadn't learned the lesson of the loaves. The walking on the water is tied to the feeding the 5,000, which was tied to them going two by two. And it continues over and over and over. Let me say this to you. I can tell you what's going to happen in your life. I don't know the specifics of how he's going to manifest the test. But you're going to be put in situations over and over and over, and it's to, for God's purpose to teach you this lesson. Trust me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on what? Your 
your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what do we do in our churches when the latest thing happens? We pull out the manual. We pull out the policies. The bylaws say this is how we're to always do it, and we totally miss out on what it means to walk with God. One of the reasons why we grumble and complain, the deep root of it is we don't really trust that God is good and that he's sovereign. There's another reason also. It's a lack of belief in God's love for us. It's kind of tied together. We, we, we don't really trust that he's in control, and we really don't trust that he's for us. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Let's go back to the first four verses that we looked at earlier. Look at what Paul says. So he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord when of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. When he says that we need to have this humble attitude, what's the root of it? Because of our relationship with God, because he's for me. When you really believe that I'm going to run ahead of myself here. But when you really believe that you're a child of the king, Paul says it here in Philippians verses 14 through 18, as children of God, when you really understand that God is for you and he's in full control, it doesn't matter what happens to you. You're going to be okay because everything that comes to me from my father's hand is good. Job had to go through that struggle, didn't he? Job had that same wrestling match. Oh, yeah, at first he said, naked I came into this world, naked I return, and he praised the Lord. But eventually he starts to get a little grumbly, does he not? If we're being faithful to the scriptures, Job starts to say, I don't think this is right. How can man argue with God? I mean, I need a mediator. Actually, we do. And then he says something like this. He said, uh, I wish there were never knees to receive me. In other words, I wish I'd never been born. You know, there's more hope for a tree than for a man. You cut a tree down, at least a shoot comes back. But what hope is there for man? But eventually, he says, even though he slays me, yet will I trust him. Folks, I don't know what the specifics of your test is. But back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, listen to what God says. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all these years in the wilderness. He caused you to hunger. He put you in that situation. He did it to humble you. To remind you of your dependence on him. By the way, the Bible says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. Listen closely again. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You're going to experience humbling no matter what. There's no way around it. You're going to be humbled. Either you acknowledge your dependence on God, or he'll remind you of your dependence on him. He says, I put you in that situation to humble you, to remind you of your dependence on me. I also did it to test you, to find out what was in your heart. Not so that he would know. He already knows everything about us. But why is the test? The test for us. So that we'll see who we really are. Because it's easy to say, well, I, I trust God. You'll find out. I promise you, you'll go through something that will really trust whether or not you trust God. Remember years ago when I was an associate pastor in New Orleans, a man came to me. His wife had separated from him and moved into a friend's house and he came to see me and he, he said, uh, I really want to get reconciled with my wife. And I said, let me ask you a quick question. He was a believer. I said, uh, have you given this to God? Have you sought the Lord and said, Lord, I'm giving this to you? Oh yeah, I've given it to God. 
I said, what are you doing now then? He goes, well, I'm calling her every day at work. I'm buying her flowers and sending them to her work. And every night, the house she's staying at, I sit in my car outside in the hopes that she'll come out and talk to me. I said, you haven't given it to God. He goes, yes, I have. Then why are you still trying to fix it? Are these things he's told you to do? Or are you saying, Lord, help, and then trying to fix it yourself? Remember what happened with uh, Jacob and Esau when Jacob and his brother had their little spat and they split? Remember he had stolen his brother's birthright and the brother said, Esau says, next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. And then he goes off and works for Laban for all these years. He becomes extremely wealthy and God tells him to go back home. Now to go back home means you're going to run into brother. And as he's obedient and he starts heading back home, he gets word on the way that his brother is on his way with 400 men. They don't sound like they're coming to haul furniture and help move back. <laughs> and what does Jacob do? He prays this incredible prayer. He says, God, help me. And then the scripture says he thought to himself, Maybe I'll send my family and my children ahead of me in waves. And if he starts to attack one, the other one can get away. And ultimately, he has to have that wrestling match with God where God has to humble him by touching his hip in such a way that he walks with a limp the rest of his life. He says, either you're going to trust in my power or you're going to do it in your own strength. All his life, he had been not waiting on God to make it happen, even though God had made a promise that the older would serve the younger. When it was time for God to provide the blessing, what does he do? Oh, mom helped him. Well, maybe God needs help. And he tricked his father instead of waiting on God to do it. When he worked for Laban and how God said, I would prosper you and take care of you, he starts tricking and cheating Laban in order to build up his herd. All his life, instead of waiting on God, he tried to help God. Folks, let me just say to you, part of the reason why we crumble and complain is we really don't trust him. And I say we, pointing to myself as well. Do you really trust him? Are you willing to wait until you know what he said to do? Or do you think something has to be done? And do you really believe that he's for you? Go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I found this verse. I've never really seen this before. I mean, I've read it. I'm sure I've read the Bible. But I've never seen this passage in this section. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Second Thessalonians 2.16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal what? Comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Did you catch that? God has not only given us salvation, he's given us eternal comfort. Those of you that are going on the cruise that I'll be teaching on in November, God has shown me what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing, as you, I've already told you, a study of John 14 through 17. But the way we're going to be going at it is this. The, the title of the this, this study is going to be, Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled. Because Jesus knew that he was about to go to the cross and they were going to be away from him for a time. And then the Spirit was going to come and they're going to need to learn about abiding and all this. But they're also going to go into a world without him right there, even though he was there, in which they're going to be under attack and things are going to get real crazy. And throughout this passage, Jesus keeps saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. And we're going to, on that study, really look at Jesus' intimate teaching with his disciples and have him speak to us for the days that we are in. Because he's chosen for us to live in a time that's going to get a little crazy. He's going to encourage us not to let our hearts be troubled. You believe in God? You trust in God? Jesus says, trust also in me. 
And so that's what we're going to be doing. And so, folks, let me just tell you, instead of you saying, I need to stop grumbling, you need to get to the point where you really believe God really is in control, even though it looks like he's not. And you need to get to that point where you really believe that he's for you. I know I can ask you the question, is God for you? Yes. But do we really think it? Do we really think it? Yes, sir. Yes. And you're going to have to choose again tomorrow, exactly. and you're going to have to choose again the next day. Exactly. I love that. Sufficient for the day is his grace. There's, sufficient is the evil of the day, but his grace is also sufficient. But he doesn't, like, I've been telling this to a lot of people. If you haven't heard me say this, I'm going to say it to you now. You can't abide tomorrow. In order to abide, it has to be now. You can't abide tomorrow. You have to abide now. He's not going to give you grace for tomorrow until tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day's got enough trouble of its own, and I'm only going to give you grace for right now. Well, and if we call on the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizing and focusing on what God is doing, not so much on what we think that he is not doing, you know. Well, and you're bringing up a wonderful point back from that Deuteronomy chapter 8 passage where he says, I humbled you, I tested you, and I also taught you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds. You've got to be living in this continual relationship with me. Your instructions are going to, you don't just get my book and try to do what it says. You need to be knowing, this will help you know which spirit's talking to you, but you need to know how to recognize that I'm leading and I'm guiding. And this is what I believe God wants us to do. It lines up with his word, and I think that's what we're to do. And then in the midst of that, in verse 4, what does he say? Oh, and by the way, your clothes never wore out. In 40 years, your foot never swelled. They were so focused on all the things they didn't think he was doing, they missed out on all that he was doing. And what does the Bible say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6? It says, don't be anxious about anything, but anything, but in everything. What? With thanksgiving, thanking God for what he is doing, make your request known. And then what happens? He'll give you peace. He'll give you rest. But it's a daily process. So, folks, let me just tell you, when you find yourself getting a little grumbly, when you find yourself getting a little negative... Ask yourself this question, do I trust God? Not long term, no. in this one. Yes, ma'am. But he also knew that being our human condition would have that because the disciples said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or the man yeah. said, yep. Lord. So I think that he honors that prayer as well when we humble ourselves and yes. say, I know what your truth says. My flesh is struggling. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, and I think that's a really good point that I'm glad you brought out because, listen, does God already know what we're really thinking? Yes. Psalm 139 says, uh, there's not a thought that's even on our tongue before, God knows it before it even makes it to our tongue. Right. Uh, there, he already knows whether you're going to die for him tomorrow. He knows if he'll deny him tomorrow. There's nothing about you he doesn't already know. So for me to say, Lord, I trust you, he says, when he knows you don't, what's he going to have to do now? Remember, you've heard me say this before. If, if God wants to move you from here to here, he can't move you from here to here if you think you're already here. So what's he got to do? He's got to show you you're still here. Now I can move you to here. Lord, I trust you when he knows you don't. So it's okay to say, well, I got to be honest with you, God. I, I, I don't trust you. I feel like you've let me down a few times. Ah, remember when this happened and I prayed and I don't understand, but she died. Or this time that I did this and, and that happened. And I called out to you, but it didn't work out like I thought. I'm struggling a little bit. I, I can almost picture God like he did with Job. And I, I picture him saying, now we're getting somewhere. Because I know your heart. I know where you really are. 
Why did God say to Adam and Eve, where are you? Did he not know? But he needed them to fess up and to acknowledge what he already knew. And God's going to put you in situations to really pull out where you really are. He's not mad. Like I told you, years ago when AJ thought he could swim and I knew he couldn't, I had to give him a swimming test. My swimming test was to throw him in the deep end. Oh, he failed it. I wasn't mad. I was so glad that he failed it because now that little one-year-old knew what I already knew. And he was now teachable. When before, he wasn't even afraid of the water because he thought he could swim. When you fail the test and God knows you're going to fail the test, he's not mad when you fail the test. It accomplished its purpose. So do you tr really trust him in the situation? That's the real reason you're, you're grumbling. And also, do you ever really believe in God's love? And, and as you already know, our fleshly desire to be in control of our lives. I, you've still been bit with the same bug. I don't know if you understand that. Even though you've been born again and you're a new creation, your still body is still under the curse. The Bible says sin still dwells in us. And it's a hard thing for us to understand. It doesn't mean we're no longer accountable. But Paul said in Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. And then he says this, when I sin, it's no longer I who do it. It's sin living in me. Now, doesn't mean we're not accountable. Doesn't mean that God's not going to use those situations to teach us and to discipline us. But Paul says a very, he says it twice. Because I'm a new creation and I'm living out of my new nature and I act like my old self, it's not because I'm still, and I, the whole white dog, black dog illustration many of us have been taught over the years, it's a horrible illustration because uh, uh, when Jesus comes in, you've been crucified with Christ, you no longer live. <laughs> the old man has been put to death. Well, why does he still show up? Because it's in your flesh. It's in your flesh. And Paul says, it's no longer I who do it, it's sin living in me. And every one of us, remember what Adam and, uh, Satan said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3? He says, when God knows when you eat of this tree, well, he's lying to them, but he said, God knows when you eat of this tree, you can be like who? Like God. Wait a minute, isn't that exactly what he did that got him kicked out of the presence of God? Or at least out of his role that he had, he still can go in the presence of God until that ultimate time that he's cast into the pit. But listen, he, Satan said, I want to be like the Most High. And then he infected us with that same thing. And whether you know it or not, we all still want to be in control. Oh, and by the way, um, anxiousness, worry, fear, anger, all stem from the same place. A sense of a lack of control. Some of you, when you feel like things are out of control, you get anxious and you get worried. Some of you, when you feel like things are out of control, you got a, what we call a short fuse. You get mad. But the real issue is you don't feel like you're in control. And as you deal with people, if you know anything about psychology and if you've ever been in ministry and deal with folks like I've had to, the real issue is control. We want control. Some of us handle it in different ways. These feelings will ultimately manifest themselves and in, in the, they'll come to the surface in either grumbling, disputing, and we don't fix this by trying to suppress the feelings or by wearing a mask to keep our true feelings from showing themselves. We need to get to the root of the problem. So remember Paul had just said in the previous verses, obey, not only in my presence, but also much more now in my absence. Oh, and by the way, when you do it, do it without grumbling and complaining. You've heard the illustration of the parent who sat the child down and the kid wouldn't want to sit down. And finally the 
parents forced the child down and the child said, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm not, I'm standing on the inside. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> this is kind of what God's saying here. He says, oh, by the way, you can just obey, but God knows your heart. God knows your heart. Why should we live without fear or complaint? You hopefully know the answer to this now. I've kind of laid it all out. Why should we live without fear or complaint? Because he's God. Yes, because, because we are who? Children of God. We're children of God. Look at what he says there in Philippians chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Remind yourself, you're a child of the king. If you haven't ever read the book God Smuggler, please get it. It's awesome. And as God was shaping him in his early years of ministry and he was in this missionary school, God was teaching him about the fact that he was a child of the king. But, but God at the same time was orchestrating things. The money was tight. And he at one time actually was going around looking on the ground for pennies. And then God spoke to his heart and said, this is not how a child of the king acts. A child of the king would not have to go out digging on the ground for pennies. My father is going to meet my need. And he started to teach, God started to teach him to trust him. And then at one point, he miraculously found, or God, actually not found, but God provided some money. And he was so excited because he needed to buy something and he was, had the money to buy it. And then at the moment that God gave it to him, this man walks up and asks him for some money. And the spirit of God says, give it to him. And he said, no, Lord, I know once I give it to him, he's going to go get a drink with it. And God says, trust me. But Lord, you just provided for my need. And God says, and I'm also testing you. Do you really trust me? Give it to him. And he gave it to him. And when he walked in obedience to God, God then, in another way, supernaturally, blessed him with even more. Folks, I'm not a health and wealth guy. But there are some scriptural truths that they have taken too far that I think many of us are missing out on. Our God loves to show off. But the issue is, He's going to put you in situations to show that you trust him. What does he say? Uh, give it to me first. Tithe. Give offerings. Lord, I'm not paying my bills with 100% of my check. Do you trust me? Go out into a crowd of over 5,000 people and tell them we're going to feed, people, feed them before they go. We don't have enough food, Lord. Just go tell them it's going to happen. <sighs> Lord, I'm going to look stupid. Do you trust me? Those of you remember back when I was pastor in the Atlantic, we sh I showed up in May of 2000, and the budget at the time in May of 2000 was around 300-something thousand dollars, and they weren't meeting budget. And then November came, and it was time to put together the budget for the new year, and, and I was, as I prayed about it, I really felt like God was starting us to tell us to just scrap everything and go to zero, start fresh, and to do what we call a faith budget, where we had each ministry team go off and pray and spend a month saying, Lord, what do you want to do through us in the coming year? And... Uh, they, they came back and they said, we feel like God wants to do this, 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 and this. And I'd say, okay, now go find out what it's going to cost to do all those things. So they went out and did the research and whatever, and they came back and they said, okay, it's going to cost so many thousand dollars for our ministry team to do these things in the coming year. And I said, okay, that's your budget. And they were like, wait a minute, you're not going to cut it? You're not going to say what we can afford? I said, you went and prayed, and you believe God said that that's what he was going to do. We have to trust that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. And so I got there in May of 2000 when they weren't meeting the budget, and they told me that I had to fire the other two guys that were on staff because we couldn't pay them, they said. And in November of 2000, we presented to the church a budget of $750,000. That's what God told us when we went off and prayed. Now, i got to be honest with you. I'd only been there a few months. It's kind of scary to stand up in front of people and say, here's what we believe God wants to do. 
And a man in the back raised his hand and he said, uh, how much did we take in last year? And I had to bite my tongue. And I, all I could say was, that's a stupid question. <laughs> because that has nothing to do with this. It's not, can we do it? The question you have to pray about is, did God say this? These people went out and they sought the Lord and we asked them to go say, God, what do you want to do? And they came back and said, this is what they heard God say. This is what it's going to cost to do that. You all have to decide whether or not you think they heard from God when you vote yes or no on this budget. I can promise you when everybody voted yes, some of them were voting yes just to watch it fail to prove me wrong. I wish I could tell you I had so much faith that I didn't have a bellyache. But by the end of the year, we had taken in over $800,000. And by the time I had left there, the budget was $1.2 million. But it wasn't because we could do it. It was, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I can promise you, when you walk in this way, he's going to put you in situations to find out whether or not you really do trust him. But he also gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, which is Christ in us. He's yes, God. And, and it's we simply him. we call on the power of the Holy Spirit, he will manifest himself. Very quickly. Yep. Yeah, well, he won't pass by won't if pass we invite him in. Go to Romans chapter 5. I want to read to you verses 1 through 11. Yes, but I guess in the sense of he's there, but at the same time, he, he's, even though he's within us, he ain't going to do it unless we let him. Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 11. Listen closely to what Paul says here. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified, past tense, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we what? We stand. You're secure in it. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Wait a minute. How can you rejoice in sufferings? The only way you can rejoice in sufferings is if you know that everything coming to me from God's hand now is good. And therefore, this trial is a good thing. What is has anybody ever thought about how many times Jesus said something that we consider bad was good? I, he, he let Lazarus die. And he says, we're going back there now. And I'm glad I wasn't there. You're glad you weren't there? And then also he says in John chapter 16, he says, it's good for you that I'm going away. Verse 7. He says, it's good for you that I'm leaving. Lord, where are you going? Because when I go, then the Holy Spirit can come. And I can be with you all. Right now you got to stand in line to spend time with me. A woman's got to push through a crowd of people just to be able to touch me. Zacchaeus has got to climb a tree to even be able to look at me. But it's good, actually. But it doesn't sound good. It's good. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. All the way through, God, the things we think are bad, God says are good. Let me give you a verse. It's Proverbs 3, verse 27. Write it down, look at it later on, and spend some time meditating on it. Proverbs 3, verse 27. Listen to what it says. It says, do not withhold good to whom it is due when it's in your power to do something. I'm going to say it to you again. Do not withhold good to whom it is due when it's in your power to do something. Now, you could look at it as to what your responsibility is. I want you to look at it and looking at who God is. Would God ever ask you to do something that he would never do? No. Therefore, God will never... Because he's perfect in all these things. All right? He doesn't have a bad day when it comes to the Proverbs. <laughs> he will never withhold good to whom it is due when it's in his power to do something. Oh, by the way, is there ever a time it's not in his power to do something? Nope. That means that every... And by the way, because we're his children, 
through Jesus Christ. We're in Him. Everything that He does in our direction is good. Even when it's not pleasant. It's good. And you've got to get that into your head. You've got to understand that. You've got to let that sink in. You've got to let that truth. Because when that really starts to sink in, your responses will become different. Can we blame so much on Satan? Oh, yeah. But Satan can't do anything unless God lets him. So actually in the prayer that he teaches us as a model for prayer, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, we're talking to God. And then later on he says, Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. He's teaching us, hey, God controls whether Satan's allowed to do anything in your life. So you get mad at Satan all you want. But ultimately it was God who allowed it to happen. want to look at being um, you, you give, give it over to somebody else not taking accountability as opposed to is God pruning me mm -hmm. as he molds me and makes me into his image and conforms me because that's how his great joy. How often do we in situations where we think injustice has happened want to make sure that justice happens? What does God say? Vengeance is mine. I'll repay. Jesus, he went through a phony trial, illegal the way they did it in the time of day that they even had it. All these things were done. He was accused of things that weren't even true. And he just stood there and took it. Why? Because his eyes were on the Father. And as Pilate stood and looked at him and said, hey, don't you realize I have the authority to have you put to death or even released? Why don't you say something? And Jesus looked right at him and said, you would have no authority over me unless my Father gave it to you. In other words, get over yourself, Pilate. My eyes aren't even on you. You're not my solution. I ain't praying to you. My eyes are on God. And if he wants me released, I'll be released. Oh, by the way, doesn't that sound like the guy who's writing this letter? Has, and you'll see as we keep reading in this section that he actually says the same thing again that he said in chapter one. Remember in chapter one, he said, I'm torn between the two. I don't know if I'm going to be put to death here in this prison or if I'm going to be released and I'm torn because if I die, I go be with Christ, which is awesome. Or if I stay in this body, it's more fruitful labor and I'll get rewarded for it for I think I'm going to stay. Look at what he says. He goes on here now. And, and we'll come back to the crooked and twisted generation in just a second. Look what he says in verse uh, uh, 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if I die in this prison, even if my life is poured out. Now, if you don't understand what the sacrificial drink offering was, it was called the libation. They would have the sacrifice. And sometimes the priest would also pour on top of the sacrifice wine while it was being offered. Those of you who like wine would say, whoa, you're wasting it. <laughs> Paul said, you all are my sacrificial offering to the Lord. And if God chooses to on top of my sacrifice to him, kill me and pour me out on top of it, I'm okay with that. I'm okay, because whatever he does is best. I've shared this with some of you years ago, my great-grandmother on uh, my mother's side. Uh, she lived to be 102, but in her 80, I think 85, 86, she was in a horrible car accident with four other, three other family members. There were four people in this car, and they were on an icy patch on an eight-lane highway up in Connecticut, and they got spinning and went into oncoming traffic, and it was a horrific, where both of her back, uh, she was in the back seat, both of her legs were broken, 
and she's in her 80s, and they were right in the middle of all these cars going, blowing by, and I mean, they're really hurt bad, and they can't even get out of the car, and they decided just to hold hands in the car and have a prayer circle. And when it got to my great-grandmother's time to pray, this was her prayer. Lord Jesus, I am your child. Do with me as you wish. How come Paul and Silas, when they've been beaten, thrown in the inner cell, and stocks were singing and praising God? Because they believed that everything that came to them was coming through their father's hand, and it was good. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I'm not really liking this. Jesus prayed that, didn't he? Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Folks, when we get to that point, oh, it doesn't matter what happens if someone cuts us off. We won't grumble or complain. We don't get picked for the position we wanted to get picked or we didn't get the job. You know what? God's in control. I'm going to be all right. Like somebody used to say, God's got it. God's got it. I know a pastor that says that all the time, too. Still does. Let me ask you this question. I'm going to jump ahead in my notes and, and come back in a second here. How was the Philippians' faith in Christ a sacrificial offering? How was the Philippians' faith in Christ Paul's sacrificial offering? That's part of it. You've you got to keep in mind now. What was Paul's plan for his life? He was a Pharisee, and he was trying to move up the chain, become Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was so zealous that he was actually out trying to persecute Christians who were kind of going against their sect, you know, and all this stuff. But he surrendered his plan for his life for God's plan for his life. And he had sacrificed what he wanted for what God wanted. And these Philippians coming to faith was the sacrifice of Paul for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen closely though. Who gets to choose what your sacrifice is? Only God. You can't turn this teaching into, well, I'm going to sacrifice this. Uh-uh. God chooses your sacrifice. Not you. God chooses the plan he has for your life. To some he gives five, so to others two, to so others one each according to your ability, you find out what it is that God's asked you to do, and you live the life He has for you. Oh, trust me, it's probably not going to be exactly what you had in mind, but actually if you go deep down and let the Spirit of God do some talking, you'll see that He's been preparing you for that. That's what Paul ends up saying in Genesis, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 1, around verse 11. He started to realize when God, who set me apart before birth as a preacher to the Gentiles. Later on, he came to realize this was God's plan for my life all along, and I love it. But at the time, he had to be willing to lay it down for what God had in mind. Every one of us is going to go through that in some way or another. The lives that he has for each of us are going to be different, and you've got to stop thinking that everybody's supposed to be the same. Some of you are going to go through journeys that none of us will ever experience. But if you're willing to trust him and just live the life he has for you, that is your sacrifice. That is your offering to him. I'm going to do what it is you've asked me to do. I'm going to live the life you have for me. And these people coming to faith was a part of his sacrifice. And he says, if God chooses to pour me out as a thing of wine on top of it and kill me in the process, I'm okay. Because there's nothing he does that isn't good for me. Count it all joy, my brethren, 
when you face trials of different kind. Why? Because these things are good. I'm going to preach a message up in Virginia. And we're going to take a look at the fact that, like I just touched on, a lot of things that God calls good, uh, bad, uh, we call bad, God calls good. We're going to take a look at the fact that actually it's in the struggle, it's in the trial, it's in the tribulation, it's in whatever it is that's the problem that actually prepares us for what God's about to do next, and it helps us come to know Him in a way that we never, ever, ever would unless we had been through that situation. We're going to take a look at John chapter 11, where Jesus is coming to the tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead, and of course the people are all out there, and they see Him weeping with Mary and, and the other people, and they say, well, look how He loved Him. And then they ask this question. They said, couldn't the one who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? And as they were questioning, the stage is being set for the miracle. Their hearts are being prepared. The times that you're questioning, the times that you don't understand, the times that you're wondering, guess what? The stage is being set for you to experience God in a whole new way. Mark chapter 6, verses 37 through 41, the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is asleep on a pillow and the storm comes up and the waves are crashing over and they go and grab him and they say, Lord, don't you care if we drown? King James says, don't you care if we perish? And I love the fact that that's the whole reason he was on the earth is because he cared whether or not they perished. <laughs> And then Jesus stands up and he speaks to the wind and the waves and he says, quiet, be still. That's what the translation says. It says, quiet, be still. And the waves and the wind instantly went, Whoop! any of y'all here fishermen? Any of y'all like to fish? You know when you go early in the morning and it's like glass? In the Greek, the Bible actually says that the wind and the water became Whoop! like glass. It didn't slowly calm down. When Jesus said, quiet, be still, it instantly went, yes, sir. And that you go look in Mark chapter 6, uh, sorry, chapter 4, I'm in the wrong section, chapter, chapter 4, verses 37 through 40, 41. It says, and they were utterly amazed, and they said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It was in the struggle that they started to question, and then they were prepared for what God was about to do in revealing himself in a way in which they would have never, ever, ever experienced. How does Paul say, he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. And then what does he say? In the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, to become like him in his death. Let me just tell you, folks, some of these things that you're going through, that's the only way you're ever going to really get to know who God is in a deeper way. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the scripture says we can comfort others with the comfort we have received from God. You can't receive comfort from God unless you've been through something first. And then because you've learned more about who God is, you're able to walk someone through who's going through that because you can share who God is in a deeper way that you've come to realize. For years, I used to always, as a pastor, think as I had this mindset that I was supposed to know everything. And so people would come and share me their problems. And first of all, I'm not a counselor and I'm inside going, eh, don't tell me, tell someone else. But um. And I'd say things like this, I understand. Remember one lady goes, you don't understand? I'm like, yeah, I don't, I really don't. I just try to pretend I did. I, I've never been there, I, I don't know, I can't help you. But you know, there are other people that I've came to realize over the years who had been through those things and I would say, go talk to so-and-so, go talk to so-and-so. When I started to realize I wasn't supposed to fix everybody. Look at what he says there in verse uh, 14. He says, do all these things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a what? A crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. 
So then day of Christ, I'll be proud and haven't run in vain. Let me ask you a quick question. We'll, we'll wrap up with this. We'll come back on 22nd and finish up. I got so many more notes we didn't even get to tonight, but God got me fired up. So, but uh, is the day, are the days we're living in worse than they were back then? What do you think? Uh, some no, some sort of. Keep going. Yeah. Let's go and take a look at that section you're talking about. Go to, go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14. It says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will this be? He talked about the temple being thrown down and not one stone on top of the other. He says, when will this be, and what will, that will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and the kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and the end will come. Listen closely. Jesus here is talking about the tribulation period. If you go on and see, you'll see that he starts describing what's going to be going on in the tribulation period as you put it all together. When he talks about wickedness increasing... In this passage here, he's talking about how bad it's going to be during the tribulation period. Now, don't think you know the answer to my question yet, because stick with me. But in this passage here, when it says wickedness will increase, he's talking in context about the tribulation period. So I keep saying, that's, that's not yet, it's not yet, but that time's coming. And then as you know later on, he says it's going to be so bad that if those days weren't short, no one would, be, no one would live through it. It's, it's going to get really, really, really bad. Listen to, uh, uh, go to Luke 23, verses 26 through 31. Luke 23, 26 through As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people, of women, who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? He turns to these ladies and says, you need to be praying for, crying and weeping for yourselves. Not really them per se, but meaning them as humans. Because he says there's a day coming when they're going to say, happy are those who haven't given birth. And what did Jesus also say in Matthew 24? He says, pray that when that time comes, you're not pregnant. There is a time coming where wickedness is going to exponentially explode. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that at the time that Satan will be removed from the presence of God, cast down to the earth, and he's going to just, he's going to just let it rip because he knows that his time is short. So first of all, we need to understand in some of these contexts, when we talk about wickedness increasing, 
we have tried to apply them to our day when they're really in context talking about that time period when it's the tribulation period. That doesn't mean that things aren't worse now than they were before. But let me ask you this question. Is there anything new under the sun? No. Is there new kinds of wickedness that wasn't before? No. no, Sodom and Gomorrah has always existed, but here's the difference. Back in those days, even though there was wickedness, it was contained in certain places. Now we're living in a time in which the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in the last days godlessness will abound. Are things worse than they were back then? Not in the sense that we're doing new things that they weren't doing back then. The evil is no different. The difference is this. Well, I hate to say it, but the church is losing its saltiness. What did Jesus say? We're the salt of the earth. Remember, salt slows decay. And if it loses its saltiness, what good is it? The Bible's pretty clear that even the church itself is going to be a real reckoning in the last of the last days. Are things worse than they were before? Not in the sense that we're doing new kinds of wickedness. The difference is what used to be in Sodom and Gomorrah is now becoming widespread. Are we not seeing it in our nation as all of a sudden it used to be this state and maybe that state that would allow homosexual marriage and now it's spreading? We live in a twisted and crooked generation just like the people of Philippi did. We're not doing new stuff, but it is increasing in its manifestation. That wickedness has always been there, but it's starting to spread in a way that gives evidence as to how close we are to the end. Don't think things are worse now because people are doing things they didn't do before. There's nothing new under the sun. Wickedness has always been wicked. And trust me, if you read your Bible, there's some real wicked stuff that's gone on all along. But it's grown in the sense that we're living in a day in which evil doesn't hide as much as it used to. There's no shame. It's more accepted. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and we'll wrap up with this. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, but understand this, that in the last days, and by the way, when here it talks about the last days, remember the last days began when Jesus came to the earth. The Bible is very clear that the last days, so we know in the past he spoke through the prophets, but now in these last days he's spoken through his son. There are many passages that talk about here that we're in the last days. They began when Jesus uh, came to the earth. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then he says, avoid such people. Listen closely. Is he talking about the tribulation period here? No, he can't be because we're not going to be here when the tribulation period occurs. We're going to be gone. So if he's speaking to the church and saying avoiding such people, he's talking about what's going to be happening in our day. And folks, let me just tell you, if you already don't know, in those who claim to be Christians, divorce is just as rampant as those who don't claim to be Christians. And all the things that are happening and all the, the disobedience, it's, it's increasing. The Philippians lived in a crooked and twisted generation, and he said, I want you to shine as lights in this crooked world. Listen closely, by the way. It's real easy to shine in this world today, is it not? I mean, you don't have to work at it, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, as dark as things are, you just need a little flicker. 
There was this, when I was in Panama, there were three bathrooms downstairs in this bunk room that we were all staying in. And all the guys wanted to shower in two of them, not the third. The reason was, in that third bathroom, there was this little itty bitty light bulb. It literally was only about this big. And when you flip the light switch on, the, the room didn't even really change in brightness. And it was kind of hard to shower in there because you didn't know what, what you were scrubbing and, and whether it was clean. But it was an interesting thing about that bulb. And I've never seen anything like this. But if you stayed in there long enough, that little bulb got brighter. I don't know how that worked. But by the end, you're like, hey, I can see, you know? By the time you're done with shower, it actually, I, I, but here's the thing. We're living in a crooked and twisted generation in the same way that it's always been, but we're living in one now that it has spread and things are starting to be accepted. But how do we, according to this passage, how do you shine? First of all, you remember you're a child of God and you let that rule how you do it and you hold fast to the word of life. You hold fast to the word of life. Oh, your flesh is going to want you to conform to the pattern of this world. That's why daily we need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're renewed in the spirit of our minds and we'll know what his will is and he'll walk us through it and he'll guide us. So I didn't say to you tonight, stop grumbling and complaining. I don't want you focusing on the cobweb. Get to the spider. Get to the real issue. Do you really believe he's in control? And do you really think he's for you? And are you willing to acknowledge that your desire to have things go your way is traced back to Satan and you need to stop acting like that? Mm -hmm. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you so much for this chance to come and to study your word. And Lord, uh, when we come back in a few weeks, uh, we're going to look at how Paul then goes on and says, I want, I'm going to send you Timothy because he's actually living this out as well. Lord, my prayer is this. We get ready for when you're going to be teaching us from that passage if we're still here. If you haven't come gut us by the end, uh, Lord, that we would be those that you could use. That we would not only know it on paper and have passed the class, but we've been living it out in such a way that someone, you, could send us to go live it out in whatever situation you want us to live it out and to shine for your purposes. Oh, Lord, um, we think that trying to tell people we go to church is shining the light. That's not it. The world needs to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, evidences of your spirit. And Lord, it's tough. Uh, we know it's tough. Uh, we're living in a world in which, it's, as someone's already said tonight, it's accepted to do evil. And anybody that thinks that certain things are wrong nowadays will be mocked or ridiculed or maybe even put to death in some parts of the world. And one day, maybe here even. Lord, are we willing to trust you? Some of us have issues that we're not happy about, and we have a tendency to grumble and complain. Father, may we not say, well, I'm going to stop doing that. May we let your truth sink into our hearts to the point that we just stop. Because it's you who works in us, both to will and to act according to your good purpose. And Lord, may we actually see these things we're going through as good. Oh, we love to hear the stories of how you walk on the water and you provide miracle uh, motors and all this stuff. Do it in our lives as well. And I know you will when we don't lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and you direct our path. And when we walk in obedience and trust you, when we listen to that still small voice. When we do what you ask us. We see you do amazing things. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that you're not looking for perfection. You're looking for yieldedness. 
May we surrender the area you're speaking to our hearts about tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming.